Is your business worth saving? Welcome to Business Rescue Roadmap, providing new approaches to your business, how to avoid pitfalls, and proven methods to take your business to the top. Save your business, rescue your life with your host and business coach, Stacy Tushel. Hello and welcome to the Business Rescue Roadmap. I'm your host, Stacey Tushel, and I'm so excited for our episode today. We have Jeff Goins joining us, and he's the author of four books, including the national bestseller, The Art of Work. He is also a full-time blogger, speaker, and entrepreneur. Jeff's award-winning blog, GoinsWriter.com, has been visited by over 4 million people from around the world. His work has also been featured in The Washington Post, USA Today, entrepreneur, Forbes, and psychology today. Jeff runs an online business helping writers and creative entrepreneurs chase their dreams. Jeff, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the Business Rescue Roadmap. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Glad to be here. Oh, absolutely. So did I miss anything in your bio, anything our listeners should know before we jump right in? You did, actually. Oh, okay. Fill uh, us in. Well, I on my byline, there is a little phrase um, that you failed to mention, which is guacamole connoisseur. <laughs> uh, multiple times a week, I make homemade guacamole for myself and my family and, you know, any, any of the uh, <clears throat> wandering vagrants who happen up on my doorstep and, you know, want some good, you know, healthy fat. And uh, so I'm pretty proud of that. Okay. Well, my apologies. I'm so <laughs> sorry that I missed that. No, All right. Great. Well, this is this is going to be great. I can already tell. So let's jump in. The first section that I call is commit to win or cut your losses. And in this section, I just want to kind of pick your brain, talk to you about the choices you've made to really commit to having this successful writing career. So take me back, you know, before you decided to start your business and tell me what choices and decisions you had to make before you decided, hey, do I do this or do I move on? So I'll tell you right off the bat, Stacey, that one of the things that kind of annoys me about um, stories of success, especially in business, is how most of the time, because I, I interviewed um, when I was working on my my latest book, The Art of Work, I interviewed uh, hundreds, nearly a thousand successful entrepreneurs, park rangers, uh, nonprofit leaders, writers, you name it. And... Um, you know, uh, what we finally, when we finally got to the bottom of their stories, most of the people had succeeded in their careers and in their crafts and in their businesses. Um, like they didn't plan it out and I'm not saying it happened accidentally, but they like didn't have this vision. And what I realized through that experience is, um, often we don't plan these things. Uh, but once we start to see something happening, as you said, we commit to it, we, we dig into it. So I just wanted to give that caveat that um, I am like, because I feel like sometimes people, they, they sort of stumble through life. They, they happen upon something, an opportunity or what have you, and, and they work hard. I'm not saying they don't work hard, but the success they see in many ways surprises them. And then, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, they look back and they go, oh, like I just did these four things. And if you do them too and you buy my book, it'll be easy. And in reality, I think it's a little bit messier than that. So I hope it's okay that I began my answer with a warning label. <laughs> hey, go for it. And anything's fair game here. Yeah. Well, I, you know, so I just, I struggle when people say that because it's, it's a little bit messier than that as, as you probably know. So, um, I didn't decide to start a business. Um, I decided to start writing 
And I think that's really where it begins is um, before, you know, you figure out even how you're going to make this work, I think you have to decide um, what am I going to do? And and I think that what should come from a who. Who am I? Uh, one of my favorite authors, Parker Palmer, says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. So what that means, uh, what it meant for me was I was 27 years old working as a marketing director for a nonprofit at a job I kind of liked but didn't love, which I think is actually a really dangerous place to be when you're – when you know, you've adopted the new – our, you know, our culture's favorite new F word, which is fine. Um, I'm fine. I'm fine. My job's fine. Everything's fine. Uh, that's a dangerous place to be. That's, you know, that's a place that you don't want to be because you can settle there. And so I was in that place and I felt an itch that I didn't know how to scratch. And I read this uh, quote by Parker Palmer. I started going to conferences. I was trying to figure out like what's missing. You know, like what's missing in my life? I was married. My wife and I were talking about starting a family, about having a kid. I was being paid well. My my boss was praising the work that I was doing. Nothing was wrong. It wasn't like one of those stories where like something terrible happened. I went bankrupt and I had to like climb out of, a you know, the gutter. Everything was fine, which like, as I said, is probably one of the worst places to be because you're not, you're not being forced to change anything. But I wasn't, I felt like, I felt like I wasn't doing my best work and I wasn't living up to my potential. So I, um, I just kind of did this kind of mental, uh, really personal historical inventory, meaning I listened to my life. I looked back at my life and I said, what are the threads or themes that are, that, that have been consistent for the past 27 or so years? And one of those themes, the main theme was writing and it sort of emerged out of all this cluttered, you know, bunch of experiences. So what I mean by that is when I was a kid, I used to draw. And when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a rock star. And then I went to college and I was a Spanish major. And I loved traveling. And, and then I gradu graduated college and, um, you know, I followed that rock star thing a little bit further and I toured the country with a band for a year. And, uh, after that I went and worked for a nonprofit and I had all these different things, uh, and none of them felt like they were building up to like one thing, like, Oh, I always wanted to do this. I had no idea, which I find is often, um, you know, a common response when, when you ask somebody, what's your passion? People go, I don't know. And that's how I felt. And so when I started looking back though, I noticed one of the things, one of the constants in all these other diverse experiences was that I'd always done creative things, particularly writing and writing was the home that I kept returning to. And so I said, well, maybe, maybe I'm supposed to be a writer. And, um, so I started a blog and I started sharing my thoughts on a blog and people started reading it and responding. And, uh, by the end of the first year, I wasn't trying to sell anything or promote anything. I thought in the back of my mind, like maybe I can make money off of this eventually, but I was just doing it because I loved it. And for so long I thought about doing it and, and didn't do it. And so when I finally did it, uh, people started reading it like that was really cool. And then by the end of that year, people were emailing me every day saying, hey, can I can I pay you for something? So I I didn't commit to making money or building a business. I first committed to doing something that I loved so well that it would create a demand that if the you know demand were high enough, people might be willing to exchange value for that. Yeah, that's great. And I want to circle back to something you said about you kind of liked this and that, and there was a few things. And sometimes you think, oh, that's great that you've got so many options. But at the same time, that can make you feel really lost. Like you're not sure what direction to go in. 
So I think that's a common theme that a lot of people do face. They're just not sure where they should take themselves in what direction. So I like your your story circling back to how you found it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when you're starting out and you need to focus on something, though that diversity feels like um, liability. And in reality, over time, it can become an asset. And so any business owner, uh, I think, will tell you that having diverse income streams is really important, you know, and uh, I call this the portfolio life. And it's the idea that what you do for a living is actually many things. And uh, in the art of work, I say that um, you don't need to be a, a jack of all trades, like you can spread yourself too thin, but you need to become a master of some, you know, this idea of like you just doing one thing and being great at it and that being all that you have to do. It's just not true. I mean, especially as an entrepreneur, Michael Gerber talks about this in the E-Myth and he says the job of an entrepreneur is really three jobs. You have to uh, you have to be a technician. You have to do the thing. You have to bake bread if you're a baker. Uh, you have to manage the actual business. You've got to open and close the thing and, and you know, wash the oven and mop the floors. Uh, and, and then, you know, you actually have to grow the business. You have to be the entrepreneur. And that's that's hard, but that's important. And that's why uh, all these different things, you know, which kind of feel like, oh, I'm just all over the place, which may be true. Um, once you start succeeding at something, you can kind of go back and pull out some of those skills. And I'm doing this right now and bring that into this portfolio that can create those multiple streams of, of income. And that could be a really fun place to be. Yeah. And I learned that the average millionaire has seven different streams of income. So that's absolutely right. Yeah. Hey guys, let me pause for just a minute and tell you about one of our sponsors, FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the online accounting software that I personally use in my business. And a couple of the things that I use it for is something like invoicing. You can use FreshBooks to create and send invoices in about 30 seconds. There is no formatting, no fuss, just perfectly crafted invoice. And they also have late payment reminders. So when a client forgets to pay you on time, let FreshBooks handle the the awkwardness with customizable late payment reminders. All right, now go and check out their 30-day free trial. You do not need a credit card to sign up and you can just go to freshbooks.com forward slash rescue and then let them know you heard about us on the Business Rescue Roadmap. So check it out, see what I use to help save my business and rescue my life every day. All right, back to the show. Well, let's talk about looking within. What personal strengths would you say have really allowed you to maintain such a strong and successful business? Uh, you know, I think that the, it's hard to talk about your own strengths because I don't, I don't like. I think I always see the things that I'm weak at, and I go, I wish those things were better. I wish I were more organized. Right. Uh, I wish I, you know, weren't so lazy and didn't procrastinate all the time. Uh, I learned an important lesson from my old boss, uh, Seth Barnes. And I noticed that he was the guy that, and he was running this nonprofit that I worked for for seven years. And in in many ways, he kind of took me on as his protege. He would mentor me, taught me uh, so much. Most of what I know about marketing and entrepreneurship, leadership, I learned under him. Uh, he was an incredible boss, a great boss. Very lucky for that. Not everybody gets that. And so when I, it was time for me to quit my job and start a business. Um, he was like, yeah, I've been waiting for this. You're ready for this. And, and he was excited for me. Uh, so one of the strengths that I 
saw in him that I have tried to adopt is I noticed that he was the guy that people would reach out to when something would go wrong in their lives. And um, he had in he had donors for his organization that he could call and say, hey, I need $100,000 or $500,000. And they would go, okay, no problem. I'll write a check right now. And I asked him because I, I saw there was influence. I saw that he was a very influential person. And I asked him, I said, how do you do this? And he said, look, I realized a long time ago, I'm not the most charismatic guy. Uh, I'm not the most emotional guy. Uh, you know, like uh, I have a lot of personal, uh, uh, you know, weaknesses or just things that I wish were better that would make me sort of a, a warmer, uh, you know, person for people that, that, you know, would, would be, would make me a kind of a more amiable, I don't know, conversationalist or something. And he said, but what I know is that, uh, what I have control over is not how much I smile or, you know, um, how charismatic I can force myself to be. What I can control more than that is how much I show up in people's lives. And he said, I just discipline myself to check in on people on a regular basis. And I haven't talked to you for a few minutes, a few months. I'll just email you. And he's just really disciplined about that more than anybody else that I know. And I think sometimes we forget how lazy most people are about staying in touch, friends, family members, whatever. If you aren't in the same town, um, it's really hard to stay in touch with people. And we all know those friends who just won't let a friendship die. Like they're just going to keep working at it. And that's influence. What I learned from Seth is this. If you just keep showing up, uh, you can outlast most people. And uh, that's what I learned to do and try to continue to do with my blog, with my business, with my writing career. I've, I was talking to my wife the other night and I said, you know – I've never had a big break. Like my first book contract uh, was for $5,000. And I, that was an incredible break at the time. I felt so lucky. But in retrospect, I mean, I just talked to a friend who who signed his first book deal and it was $500,000. And, uh, you know, I was looking at this check that I got from this client uh, for this, you know, this thing that I'd done. And it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't a huge check. And I realized, you know, to go back to the multiple streams of income, what my quote unquote success is, is it's just a bunch of things that over time added up, a bunch of small things that over time added up to something big. So when I started my blog, I wrote uh, 400 blog posts in 365 days. And for the first six months, I had 75 readers. And then by the end of that year, I had tens of thousands of readers. And, you know, things start to hit tipping points and momentum starts to get created when you just keep going. And so, you know, I have this sort of mantra, I'm not like way into cliches and stuff, but this is something that I tell myself often, especially when I see people succeeding faster or getting luckier or just like, just seems like they got a big break. And I don't think that's, I think sometimes people do get big breaks. I've just never gotten them and I don't think they're worth believing in. And so I tell myself, just remember, like some people can, you know, get lucky and some people might be more naturally gifted than you are and they can be sort of lazy about it. But you can outlast the lucky and you can outwork the lazy. And if I have any strengths, it's that I'm just going to keep going when, you know, maybe 85% of people are going to just quit and move on to something else because they're 
bored or frustrated or whatever. Yeah, I love the Outlast. It definitely has been something that I have had to think about in all aspects of my business. If you can just outlast that competitor or outlast the crazy customer that's almost <laughs> done with your program or something like yeah, that. Right. Um no, I think it's great. I love that was a great takeaway there. It was outlast. But to add on that, Jim Collins in his book, Great by Choice, which in, in my mind is the best book he's written today, causes the 20 mile march. And if you're not familiar with Great by Choice, it's a study of what makes great leaders and and the, the organizations that they run. And uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm sort of paraphrasing here because I can't remember exactly what the study was, but it was something like, what are companies that have consistently done 20% better than the market average for 30 years without fail? So if you think about the stock market, especially today, you know, values of companies are, are rising or in many cases falling. Um, and these are companies who always, 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 always performed better than the average by a margin of at least 20% or more for 30 years without fail for an entire generation. And there's just a handful of companies and leaders who did that. And he examined all of them and he said, here's, here's what they all have in common. And one of those common traits was perseverance. And he calls it the 20 mile march. And what that was, Stacy, was it was a discipline to not grow too fast as a company or too slow. And on average, the companies grew by about 20% year over year. And it, as you know, as a person with the internet, and if you watch any of these online marketing businesses and, and companies and startups, it's all about the hyper growth, you know, doubling every year, tripling, quintupling, uh, you know, growing 10 X. And like, if you're not doing that, it's not cool. And, and yet maybe greatness isn't always that maybe greatness can just be this slow and steady, uh, progressive growth towards something that's going to last a long, long time. Yeah. And growing too fast can be just as detrimental as not growing enough. Exactly. So, so yeah, that's a, a great, excellent point. Let me talk about money a little bit. And I know we kind of started getting into this, but have you, um, well, I shouldn't say have, because most people on here can give me more than one, but tell me a financial mistake that you've made in your business and share with us how you've grown from that and what you've learned that you're going to make sure you do differently in the future. So last year, I spent $200,000 on a marketing strategy that failed. And uh, how this happened was in December. So two Decembers ago, I was talking to my wife and I said, this is a great thing. It's going to cost us probably about $70,000 and it's going to make us probably $250,000. You know, what do you think? And my wife is, um, you know, basically a silent partner in everything that I do and um, a trusted advisor. And whenever she doesn't think something's going to work, it doesn't. And so I've tried to learn to, you know, confide in her and trust her and, and share things with her, even though I'm working in the business a lot and she's uh, working at home raising her son. And, um, uh, and so, you know, I shared this with her and she was like, yeah, makes sense. I mean, you know, it's a lot of money, but um, makes sense. So we're like, okay, we've got you know, we've got this money in the bank. We're not, you know, going into debt. We run our business on just, you know, all on cash. And, um, and so we're like, okay, let's do this. So, um, we do this and the, what I thought, what I was like, I thought I was being super conservative. Worst case scenario, we lose 70 K we have it in the, in, in the bank. We can afford to lose this. I always try to do a worst case scenario, like worst case scenario. Are we okay? Cause entrepreneurs a lot of time want to do best case scenario, right? Like right. this is going to be amazing, <laughs> but what's the worst case scenario? Can you survive the worst case scenario? That's always the question, especially when it comes to money. 
And so I said, yeah, we can survive this. We can, sur- we can lose $70,000 and the upside is big. The downside is, is survivable. So somehow <laughs> that $70,000 became $200,000. And around that same time, uh, I thought this income was going to come in March. And, uh, and so we got a little bit upside down because we didn't really have any sort of receivables for the first quarter last year <clears throat> for lots of complicated reasons that aren't worth going into just because of our, the cycle of our business. And so we had this, you know, expense that kept growing and growing and growing. I put it on a credit card. Uh, I, <laughs> I put on another credit card and I was like, I was like, okay, we're all right. And then we got hit with this tax bill, this $50,000 tax bill. Uh, and my, uh, um, my tax advisor was like telling us that we were going to pay what we paid last year, which was not $50,000 without taking into account our income had doubled. The revenue of our business had doubled. And when that happens, what you owe the government tends to double. And it was just this perfect storm of all these terrible things happening in April. And, and there was no money in the bank yet. I mean, there was, you know, that, that $70,000 and, and so I'm calling American express and, and I'm really nervous and I realized, look, we can, you know, pay the interest on this and all that, but it wasn't going to like destroy our business. But I was freaking out because, um, it's, uh, it was the first time this had ever happened. I realized some, you know, some business owners like this is just, you know, par for the course. But for me, it was devastating to, um, you know, be that much in debt that quickly and not really have a way out. And, um, and I just, I felt like a failure and I was like, I feel, I feel like an idiot. I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. You know, uh, two, three years ago I was making $30,000 a year and here I just blew 200 grand on this sure bet. Right. And so I went to my wife and, uh, she's, you know, I'm kind of the dreamer. She's kind of like, how are we going to get this done? And I just broke down. I started to cry a little bit. And then I said, I'm sorry that I screwed up. And I, you know, like my wife is not um, shy about telling me, yeah, you screwed up. And yet she didn't do that in this moment. She looked at me and she said, look, for the past two years, we have never had to worry about where money was going to come from. It, you just took care of it. You provided for our family because we both quit our jobs. Uh, she had a baby. The whole reason I started the business um, one of the reasons I started the business, so I mentioned, you know, people started emailing saying, hey, how can we pay you for things? Around the time we were pregnant, and so I went from creating a $1,500, creating this this PDF that I sold and, and made about $1,500 off of uh, a few months later to a $15,000 product launch with an ebook to $150,000 business by the end of, um, you know, the first year uh, with this online course that I taught. And so by the end of that second year um, uh, of doing that, my wife, you know, uh, had her baby and she was on maternity leave and she didn't want to go back to work. She wanted to stay home and be a mom for a while, let her do that because we had <clears throat> made enough money to do that. And that was really what was driving me a lot was how could I make enough money to replace her income, which is, you know, same as my mine basically. So just looking back, we're going, this is crazy. And, um, and all of a sudden I jeopardized not just my business or my own <laughs> income, but my whole family's well-being and the lifestyle that we were trying to create. And she said, look, we have not had to worry about that in the past two years. This is fine. We can recover from this. Just don't do this again. <laughs> yeah. 
<clears throat> so, you know, the, the first thing that I would say, Stacey, not to, you know, drag this out with a long story or anything, is um, the first lesson that I learned was, um, like, like talk to your tax advisor. Like, make sure you know how much you're going to pay in taxes and just plan better. I didn't plan as well. I should have thought, well, duh. Like, we doubled our income. We should expect to pay double what we paid last year and have that money in the bank. <clears throat> Some things moved around so that I thought I was going to get paid in March. I didn't get paid until, like, end of April. And literally, like, April 14th, I was like, oh, yeah, taxes, tax day. I got I to gotta pay this taxes. So, you know, we, we, ex we, we filed for an extension. We paid a little bit. We, we ended up filing in October. Uh, I called American Express. They gave me like a 14-day grace period. We launched this course in the meantime. We generated $250,000 in revenue, you know, paid off, paid off all of the debt. And then we were, you know, cash flow positive after that and going into quarter two. Uh, so that was like the first lesson was like plan and don't do like in the words of my wife, don't do this again. Here's the second, perhaps more important lesson. I felt shame about that. And uh, around that time, I started seeing a therapist and I'm talking to my therapist after I got all th uh, got through all of this, and he's just asking me questions. And I said, um, you know, I, I said I'm just not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that again. I'm never gonna do this again. I learned my lesson. He said, really, really. So, um, uh, you know, what are you gonna do differently next time? And I told him I'm gonna plan better, yada yada, because that sounds great. Uh, he says, well, how do you feel about it? And he gives me this little graph of feelings, and you know, you got to pick a feeling. And I said, I feel shame about it. I feel like I should have known better. And he said, so let me ask you a question. So you have new information, you know, you just you you have new information that yeah, if you look back, you could have you know done this better if you know what you if you knew then what you know now. Uh, but did you know that? And I said, well, no, I didn't. Like I like. I, was, I felt like I was doing a good thing and doing the best that I knew how to do at the time. And now I realize it's kind of stupid, but I really didn't know any better. It wasn't like I was moving so quickly that I just wasn't paying attention. I just, I didn't think of those things and wouldn't have unless somebody brought them up or, you know, like the IRS calling me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he said, so can you really feel shame about that? Like, can you really, could you have really done anything differently? And I said, well, I guess not. I mean, in the future, I can do something differently, but um, I couldn't have changed that, I don't think. And he said, you know, shame, there's an acronym for shame, should have already mastered everything. And that's what you're feeling right now. Like you should have known this and you didn't. And th the reality is you're probably going to face another situation where you don't know how to do something and you're going to make another mistake and you're going to feel stupid. And it's really important in that moment to tell yourself, I actually did the best I knew how to do. And try not, try not to put yourself in a devastating situations. But more important than that, realize that when you screw up, like you're not, you're not done. You're not over. You can probably recover from it. Um, and, 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 and like this doesn't define you. And so, you know, I, I don't know if that sounds trite or not, but that was really important. You know, the two lessons that I learned is plan better, do all of that, but also realize that that failure doesn't define you in almost any failure in business you can recover from even bankruptcy it's not fun you know you don't nobody wants to do it uh, but I heard this story from uh, Casey Neistat uh, Neistat recently YouTube star started this uh, startup beam basically put all of his money into it and somebody interviewed him and said um, what if this doesn't work what if this fails as a lot of startups do especially for a social media app he said look worst worst case scenario 
the whole thing goes bankrupt. I lose all my money. We got to move out of our, you know, uh, apartments, uh, you know, in, in, in Manhattan, I've got to, you know, move to some place in Arkansas, live in a trailer and eat TV dinners, uh, you know, and live off food stamps and support, you know, my family doing that. He said, guess what? I've already done that. And it's not that bad. And so when things like this happen, my wife and I look at each other and we go, well, what's the worst case scenario? Well, we go back to living in a studio apartment, you know, for, <clears throat> you know, uh, seven, $800 a month. Uh, if we can still afford, if, if the rent prices are still that low, probably not, but we go back to living in a studio apartment and we sell all our stuff and I go get a job somewhere and we're fine. We're just as like, we're just as happy now as we were back then. Um, we just get to, you know, buy nicer things and, and do more fun things. Our, our, our happiness, our self-worth is not contingent on how successful we are. Um, the success for me is about making an impact and that brings all kinds of satisfaction. That's fun. That probably wouldn't be as fun as or like delivering pizzas or whatever. But if that's all I got to do to support my family, I can. Bottom line, you're still going to be you. You're still going to be here and you're going to live to fight another day. That's a great story of the outlasting that you just talked about because something like that could have said to somebody, okay, I'm done. Let's file bankruptcy. It's exactly. over. And you went, okay, what's plan B? What's plan C? What do I need to do? <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? And that's all, that's what you have to do. If you want to be a, an entrepreneur and own a business, there's a lot of those moments like that. That's right. And I think that we have this weird relationship with failure. We think failure prevents us from success. What I have found is the opposite is true. Failure is often the thing that leads to success. Now, it's, just, it's not just any kind of failure because obviously some failure can be devastating and can lead to all kinds of shame. But it is the kind of failure that you can turn into an opportunity. It becomes a pivot point. Uh, a great example of that is how Groupon started as a nonprofit venture, uh, you know, basically doing social enterprise, uh, getting people to vote on social good causes that they could adopt in their community and then going and doing it. It lost a million dollars in the first year. They were about, and this was like 2007, 2008, you know, guess what was happening then in the right. economy. And, um, and so, timing. yeah, one of the founders said, one of the investors said to the founder, Andrew Mason, what if we try to make money off of this? They turned it around and uh, $13 billion later, which was the, um, you know, their, their valuation at their IPO, you could say that was a successful pivot. It would not have happened without the initial failure of losing that million dollars. They were about to close up shop and they said, let's just change like one thing and see if we can get through this. It makes a difference. Yeah. And the difference it makes for you to just not say that one sentence or that one suggestion. I mean, think of, think of what would have happened, vice versa. So absolutely. Right. Well, let, let me ask you about work-life balance. Um, it's an interesting topic. I always ask my um, entrepreneurs and you get both sides. So does it exist for you? Does it exist at all? Does it exist for you? Do you have it? Fill me in with that. Well, you know, you're going to get different <laughs> responses on this. I do not think it exists at all. Uh, so certainly it doesn't exist for me. That's not to say I don't have boundaries. Um, I have pretty good boundaries. I don't usually work at night. Um, and I get up every morning, make breakfast for my family, uh, hang out with my son and, you know, wash the dishes and then kind of, you know, mosey on over to work, mosey on over to my office and, and work, you know, uh, I usually don't work an eight hour day and then come home. And <clears throat> I'm not saying that's for everybody. That's just a lifestyle that I have, the kind of business that I have. 
the team that I have, it, it works. Uh, all that to say, like, I'm thinking about stuff all the time, you know, and my, if, when my wife fight, when my wife and I fight about things, half of it's like me not listening to her. The other half is, is me trying to work all the time, <laughs> you know? So I rec, I'm not lazy. I recognize that tension, that challenge. Uh, I, I, I've never found balance to me. Balance is like a teeter totter. And if, if one thing is off by a little bit, if you work a little bit much, if you if you spend a little bit too, too much time with your family, the whole thing goes off. And we've all heard that cliche probably. Um, you know, when you're when you're at work, you're you feel guilty about not being with your family. When you're at, you know, with your family, you feel guilty about not working. I don't feel that way anymore. At least when I'm trying. It's not to say I don't think about work and I don't have ideas in the shower when I'm, you know, playing Avengers with my son or whatever. I do. But what I try to do is be fully present to my family when I'm there. And when I'm at work, I try to be fully present to work when I'm there. So what that means is it's boundaries on both sides. I don't, I don't think of this as balance. I think of this as managing tension. And, and so what that means is there's always more to do at home. You know, there's always more, more ways that I could help with my wife and my son, but I have a responsibility to go to work and get things done. And we started talking about this, with, you know, as a family, because my son, who's almost four now, is at that age where he's like, Daddy, I don't want you to go to work, you know? And that used to kind of break my heart. I felt guilty. And my wife actually took the initiative and she said, well, Daddy has to go to work, you know, see this house, see those toys, um, you know, and, and there's people out there that, you know, Daddy has to, we call it make books. He thinks I make books. Daddy has to write for and help. And, and that's like, that's what he does. And when we started explaining, like, Work is not something that I do over there that interferes with family. It's it's the thing that makes that life possible and vice versa. And I've done the other thing where I've worked too much and not spent enough time with my family and I realize my work starts to suffer when I'm not investing in the relationships that matter to me. And yet the, they both tug on each other. I think it's a good tension. And our job uh, is to manage those different tensions in different seasons of life. I heard the best, the best explanation I've ever heard of this was on the podcast startup where um, uh, the host was interviewing Andrew Mason, the founder of Groupon, whom I mentioned, you know, whom I mentioned earlier. And he has a kid now. And he says, here's the thing that nobody says. When you have a kid, like your job suffers. Like everybody will tell you, you just learn how to maximize your time and you learn how to like get more out of less. It's not true. Your job suffers when you have a kid. That doesn't that doesn't mean you can't do still do a great job, but it means you could probably do a little bit better of a job if you didn't have a family, uh, because there's just natural time constraints. You know, if I didn't have a wife and kid, I could work every night till nine, ten, eleven o'clock. And what could I do with those five, six, seven hours? Could I do things that would create more success for me and my business? Absolutely, of course. Like that's ridiculous to say that that wouldn't happen. But here's the other thing. Uh, family does interfere with business, uh, in the best way possible. You know, it's worth it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the bottom line is, is it's worth it. And so my job is to, cause those are commitments that I've taken on, honor both of them the best that I can understanding that oftentimes they, they tug on each other. My son is sick and my wife, uh, was going to go have lunch with a friend of hers tomorrow while my son is at school. Well, he's six, so he can't go to school. And so she, I've got a pretty flexible schedule. I, like, I try to be interruptible. So if something happens in the family, I can, I can usually cancel stuff. And so my wife calls me and says, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? Yada, yada. I said, well, I could be home at this time. 
but the one thing I have is this interview at 1130 and I, I can't miss that. I mean, it's, it's, that's not, we can't reschedule that. It's a live radio interview, big, big show. I, I need to make that. And, um, and she said, okay, well, I, ha- I have to cancel my lunch then. And the people pleaser, people pleaser in me wants to go, babe, oh, don't, don't do that. Let me, I'll just, I'll figure it out. Uh, that's an example where like you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. Everybody has to make sacrifices based on commitments. And I, I, I said, is that okay? And she goes, yeah, it's okay. We've been trying to plan it for a while, but this, this is just what I have to do. And I said, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, you know, and I, I, I let her do that because that was that in that situation, that was the right thing for us as a family. I didn't, you know, I, I said, this is work and this, I mean, I have to do this and this is during a time when I'm normally working anyway. But as an example where like there's tension and you have to work that out based on, you know, your values and, and what you guys have committed to, you know, each other. And so this idea of balance feels like the Brady Bunch to me or something. I just think it's a bunch of hullabaloo. It's, it's hard and it's messy and you got to have messy conversations to find ways where you realize in the best of scenarios, the work supports the family. And the family supports the work and they, and, they, and they're integrated with each other. But in any sort of integration, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be messiness. And you just need to hold that tension. Yeah, I recently interviewed Samantha Edis and she taught me this was something that I'm not doing that I definitely wanted to start incorporating. But she said most people when they leave for work or they come home, they make work be this negative thing like, oh, mom's right. got to go to work today. That's right. And she said, when I come home, I say, oh, do you know what I did today? I got to interview this person and yeah. he taught me this and it was so much fun. And and you get them excited about work. And I thought that was such an interesting twist that I have to do with my kids. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what my wife started doing uh, with my son. And now I go, hey, buddy, I got to go to work. He goes, okay, see you later. Have fun. And he gets it. You know, he gets that this is a part of the life that we live as a family. It's not separate. And I agree. Work is not something bad. Um, leaving work, you know, is, is not something bad either. And just, you know, it's a discipline. I'm not saying it's it's easy. Uh, but um, trying to be fully present to wherever you are, whatever you're doing, that's what matters. You know, in many ways, uh, my son doesn't need me around for eight hours a day at this point in his, in his life. Uh, but those two, three hours I'm around, you know, at night, like I need to not be checking my phone. Like we need to make the most of that. And in the moments when I realize that I'm looking at him, we're hanging out, reading a book, running around. I'm dressed in my adult size Robin costume and he's Batman. Of course, is you know, of course I'm his, his sidekick. Um, uh, I realize like this is the best. There is nothing better than this. And I can't believe that I ever, you know, was, was bored or thought I wanted to be somewhere else. And, you know, parenting can be boring and, and frustrating and mundane sometimes, but then you have these, this is, these, this is the best moments. And you're like, this, this is it. This, this is great. Right. It's, it's changes your why definitely. Yeah. Well, one last big question for you about employees and having a team. Tell us something that you feel that you've mastered with delegation and outsourcing now that you have a business. I mean, what are things that you work on daily to really help delegate and move your business along? Well, mastered is a strong word, Stacey. I don't I don't know that I've mastered anything. Um, I realize that um, it's uh, it is it is uh, better to get somebody to get many people to do the things that you do and do them at least 80% as well as you do. And to get that off your plate, almost always that's a good trade-off. 
if if you're like me and you're sort of the technician in your business, you're the person who does the thing. Um, you bake the bread, you write the books, you do whatever. Uh, it's it's hard. It's hard to find somebody who does things the way that you're going to do them as well as you can do them. And I, I feel like we hear people like Richard Branson say, you know, just hire people that are smarter than you. And that's great. But like what happens when you like live in a town of 4,000 people and nobody's smarter than you? Like you're the smartest person there. That's why you started a business and you're an entrepreneur and the people that you're hiring are not, not denigrating that. But like what if you're that person? Um, well, you know, like you can't be doing it all yourself because that will lead to burnout. And I think one of the smartest things to do is um, if you don't have a great talent pool or even if you do, you need to have good systems. And I've learned this the hard way and I'm unlearning this. And, and so when you hire somebody for a job, you say, here's exactly what I need you to do and here's how I need it done. And here's what success looks like. Here's how you're going to be measured. And, and here's what I expect of you on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Uh, I used to have team members when I had a, a full-time job, you know, working for somebody else. And, um, uh, I had, I had a few young interns and one, one person one day accused me of micromanaging them. And I, I knew that I wasn't doing, it. I was just checking in on them. And I thought like, this is weird. Why do you think this is micromanagement? And so I asked them, I said, well, why is this my, why, why do you think this is micromanagement? They're like, well, like you just need to let me do my job. I said, but do you remember when we had that conversation about like every week I'm going to check in and ask you how it's going? They said, well, yeah, but that's micromanaging. I said, no, no, no. Micromanaging is when I say I'm going to check in with you on Wednesday and then I follow up on Tuesday because I'm afraid you're not going to do it or you forgot about it. And I go, how's that going? That's micromanaging, checking in when I didn't say I was going to check in. So all that to say, what I've learned, I don't think it's mastery, but what I've learned through a lot of fumbling and bumbling is um, hire people that can do the job 80% as well as you can because what that allows you to do is it allows you to step back and watch the machine move. You can see everything work. I used to work in a kitchen and uh, you know I, I had people working in the kitchen that, that couldn't do the things that I could do as well as I could do them. Or at least that's how I felt. You know, Kind of egotistical, arrogant, may not have been true. But the reality was I, I, was, I wasn't giving them a shot to do it as well or even better than I did. And I realized because I'd go around the kitchen, I'd, I'd start like doing something for somebody. And when I did that, something else would suffer. And then I'd go do that something else. And then I did this for weeks and months. And then finally I said, hang on a second, this is, the, this is the wrong way to do it. I said, hey, you go do that. Hey, you go do that. Hey, you go do that. And it felt lazy to me because I always like to be working. I stood and watched the kitchen work and I walked around and I would help people and tell them what they were doing. But before I had a station and whenever I, I, put my hands down to do something, something else would break. And your job as an owner is to get the machine working. So hire people who can do, you know, 80% as well as you can, and then work with them, coach them. That Now your job is to lead them and get them to that 100%, 110% and, or find somebody who can, you know, replace that and do an even better job. But initially you just need to fill that slot. Secondly, communicate exactly what you need, over communicate, when in doubt, clarify, uh, and then lastly, I think it's just really important to uh, continue to go back to here's what we said, here's what success looks like, and and make sure that's clear, which is kind of a communication thing, but it's really about goal setting and metrics and understanding how do we know we're winning and how do we know we're losing. And a lot of times businesses can be winning and they don't know because the because the boss is some unrealistic vision, which I've you know had before, and you're you're doing way better than you did the previous year or month or whatever. Uh, but it's, but it feels like failure because 
you're not celebrating the win. And so I think those things are important. Yeah. And sometimes when you have that employee who you're getting frustrated with them, I've noticed that a lot of times it's because you're not clear as the boss. They don't understand the concept of the job or they they don't have the details needed to complete it properly. So I like yeah. that you said it's it's the communication aspect, definitely. And what I've seen is um, this is a, you know, a self-indictment, but it's true. Uh, almost any failure in your business is a failure of your leadership. And that's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. Like when people don't do their jobs, we want to blame. And I've done that. Uh, but what I've realized is a, that doesn't get me to where I want to go and B, it is my fault. Everything that happens here is my responsibility because if something happened without my say, uh, it's my fault cause I didn't communicate it. Or frankly, it's my fault that I hired that person in the first place, you know, not understanding what was in their character. And I'm not saying you're not going to have bad people or failures aren't going to happen or unexpected things aren't going to happen, but it's really important to take ownership for that. And when employees, team members see you take ownership for something that was like their dropped ball, it creates an incredible amount of loyalty that is so hard to compete with. And when it, and when somebody comes along and says, I'll pay you more money or, or you know, give you a better vacation package or whatever, they're going to go, no, I want to stick with with her because she's got my back, and that's way more important than twenty, you know, an extra twenty cents an hour. Right, definitely keeps them around for sure. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. Before we go, please tell my listeners where they can find more about you or your books or anything that you want to share. Well, thanks for this, Stacy. This is Greg. Good questions. Uh, hopefully, this was you know helpful. And uh, you can go to my blog, goinswriter.com, and uh, there you can download the first two chapters of my book, The Art of Work, for free. We talk about the things that I talked about, um, we, I, me and the book, we together talk about <laughs> a lot of stuff I talked about. Uh, you know, how do you figure out what you want to do with your life? How do you enter into a stage of apprenticeship where you can get great at that thing, where you can build that skill and then start building that demand and you know, getting, you know, that work out into the world and eventually how you need to build a bridge, not take a leap, which is something I talk about in the book. Anyway, that's The Art of Work and you can go to goingswriter.com and get the first two chapters for free. If you like it, you can go buy the book or just hang on to those two chapters and tell your friends about it. So Great. thanks, Stacey. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time, Jeff. My pleasure. Hey, before you go, I want to ask you, do you love listening to the Business Rescue Roadmap? Would you like to work with me one-on-one? -on -one? If so, go to stacytushel.com forward slash coaching. For a limited time, I have a few spots each week. I take on less than one client every day where I help you save your business and rescue your life. And I help you design your own personal business rescue roadmap. I hope you check it out, stacytushel.com forward slash coaching. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Business Rescue Roadmap. Be sure to visit stacytushel.com for more free content, videos, and online courses like the Get Focused Academy that helps you let go of distractions and take the action necessary to achieve your dreams. We look forward to helping you save your business and rescue your life here on the Business Rescue Roadmap.